My name is John Behrens. I'm the director of photography of Social Dilemma, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today's guest is John Behrens, the director of photography for The Social Dilemma on Netflix right now. John, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me. I absolutely loved this. I thought the interviews looked just beautiful. And you had so many people, so much time, so many locations. I cannot wait to dive into all of it. But quickly, before we do, I want to mention our sponsor, MZ Education for Creatives. Get 20% off with coupon code GCS20. And of course, uh, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, where we have exclusive content just for our YouTube people. Uh, hit subscribe, the notification bell, so you never miss an episode. And search Go Creative Show at your favorite podcast app and subscribe to us there as well. So, John, The Social Dilemma is, that's like, to me, it's like a must-see documentary. It is timely. It talks about what's going on in social media, how it's affecting our world. I mean, what a great topic uh, to be part of. Congratulations on such a really, really good project. It was an honor to be involved. I'm really thankful that I was able to to be involved in such a timely piece. It seems like it, it's more and more timely every day. <laughs> it certainly is. Um, are you a big social media person yourself? I was. Uh, I was a fairly yeah. big social media person. I had Facebook. I had Instagram. Um, I would say those were my two primary things. I, a little bit of LinkedIn. Uh, and since making the movie, I've pretty much have weaned myself off most of them. So I will sort of broadcast occasionally. I'll check in on friends' projects. But otherwise, I've pretty much, the film has, uh, the film has steered me away from a, a lot of that. Yeah, it's kind of like the way that Forks Over Knives, what, what Forks Over Knives did for people that eat meat. <laughs> it's like, this is yeah. what, the Social Dilemma has done this for people that enjoy social media. Like, I mean, I can't get off of it because of, you know, the show and work, and I use it for promotion quite a bit. I don't know if I would have these accounts if it weren't for, you know, having to promote my business and kind of talk to people um, in the film community. I, I don't I don't know if I would have it just as kind of like a casual thing just to do for fun. I mean, it certainly has changed over time. Um, it was a lot more fun in the beginning because it was designed to be fun. It was designed yeah. to be a community. Um, and as you watch the film, you sort of see that as money, as it as they needed to monetize it, uh, that's really what kind of um, adulterated it. Um, and that's what's sort of taken the fun out of it. I remember in the beginning of being involved, you know, being on Instagram and Facebook, it was just fun. It was like a great thing. But then I I could feel the pull um, as it as it matured um, away from the sort of core principles of connecting friends to friends and more towards, hey, look at this thing and watch that. And here's an ad. Oh, and you have to watch five ads first before you do the thing. And it just, you could just feel the pull away from uh, the fun. It's like flying, you know, in the in the beginning when I started flying for work, it was fun. Um, and as the security increased and the travel and all these things, all the fun got taken out of flying. And I feel like the same thing has happened with social media is that sort of over the time, a lot of the fun has gotten taken out of it. So it is a chore uh, now for a lot of us. Now, in The Social Dilemma, there are kind of two parts to it. You have the live action part, 
Uh, well, it's all live action. That's not, oh, the recreations, you'd say. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, no, three parts it's, now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Because you've got the recreations, you have the documentary of the um, interviews, and then you kind of also have this other part that is taking place kind of in the in the brain of a person that is obsessing with Facebook. I don't know how else to describe it. Maybe mm -hmm. you can describe it better than me. What are kind of the three different elements to the social um, dilemma, and what was your role? So the the approach to this film was it was a hybrid documentary, um, and there was the there was there was the the documentary portion, which was speaking with experts and following our one of our lead characters, Tristan Harris, through his work with the Center for Humane Technologies, just trying to spread the word about what social uh, social media networks are doing and what's going on behind the scenes, yep. um, and that was all somewhat traditional documentary with a non-traditional approach to the look uh, because our director, Jeff Orlovsky, wanted to be able to really sit with interviews and not have people get bored visually. Yep. And then there was a whole different narrative component. And, it's, and we're careful to not use the word recreation because it isn't a recreation. It's a parallel storyline that is sort of incorporating all the elements of different people into a a single narrative storyline that's this family we're following through this journey in social media and all of the problems that it causes for them. Um, and then the behind the dark side, the behind the scenes of what's going on inside the black box of yeah. the AI that has been created to steer social media users towards particular content. Yeah, and that and that section is really the meat where it it shows you the ins and outs of how social media gets your attention and what they do with that attention. So it's a really, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a it's a kind of a unique take on a traditional documentary, and mm -hmm. I loved it. I, I think you're right. Like it's just sometimes you just sometimes just all talking heads is too much. Like you need to break away from that. And though they're not reenactments, like you said, that was a poor choice of words on my part. Um, it does kind of help build a narrative story around this movie. I thought it was really cool. Thank you. I'm glad. Um, yeah, I mean, now what was your what was your role on that? How in which which of these parts were you involved in? So I was the uh, I'm the cinematographer for all the documentary portions of the social dilemma, uh, and a, a gentleman named Jonathan Pope was the director of photography for all of the narrative portions of the film. Um, and there was, so there was two crews, uh, and all of the narrative portion was shot after all of the documentary portion was completed. And the storyline was pretty much assembled entirely. They made holes in, uh, the documentary portion for narrative parts and had a script. And we actually was, we're looking at an animatic version of the film. And then the the narrative portion was filmed after that um, and then intercut into the film. And very minor tweaks were made to the documentary portion after the fact because so much of the... They'd done such a good job of previs ahead of time um, that when they went and shot the narrative, it was pretty much dropping right into holes that were already in the documentary. Is that typical to have one cinematographer responsible for the interviews and another responsible for the basically everything else all the all the narrative part or the re recreations or whatever it may be i have yeah i've worked on network shows before where i was essentially the other 
I was in the other position. I was doing all the recreations and all the narrative mm-hmm. stuff and all the scripted acted stuff. And there was another DP that was shooting the more uh, documentary side of it. So yeah, that has been that's that's been done before. A lot of times with documentaries, it'll be a single DP all the way through. But a lot of times they're not trying to have such dramatically different things. Yeah. Um, and uh, d- dramatically different story elements. Um, and so that was part of the uh, part of the choice here is to really make a departure uh, and separate the two out. You know, the the narrative portion is shot on anamorphic cook anamorphics um, and the uh, the documentary portion is shot on Sigma um, cine primes. For the most part, we had some other lens choices and mixes, some Zeiss ZFs, and some. Uh, I have a Canon seventeen to one twenty that got used on some of the uh, the the live event stuff, and also sometimes got used on the um, on the documentary portions when we were changing sizes on the dolly camera. So, different set of lenses, different lighting, um, different approach, different color, um, different color grading. Um, was applied, although we sort of tried to merge things as much as possible so that you didn't have this jarring cut between the narrative world and the documentary world. Yeah, I think once you've seen both of them one time through, like you you digest it easily, like you totally understand this is what's going to happen. We're going to be bouncing back and forth and your eyes and your mind just like accept it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in addition to that, I think you guys did a great job of having it feel seamless. I wanted to talk with you about the camera lens package, how you came to that decision, and also some of the challenges of just filming this many documentaries over so many hours of time. So mm-hmm. let's start with the camera lens package and, and how you came to the decision that you did. So it, it's sort of, uh, Jeff Olofsky is a, a cinematographer himself, quite accomplished. He started with chasing uh, chasing ice and shot that pretty much himself with with uh, EX1s and HVX200s and DSLRs. And and then when he moved to his film, Chasing Coral, the next film, so much of the film took place underwater. And so they had two red dragons uh, and uh, housings for those so that they could do the underwater Mm -hmm. work. And he still owned those cameras as well as two Sony FS7s, which uh, they had used for the on-land sort of verite work on that film. So they came to the table with those cameras already, and they said, well, how about if we throw those in the mix? We own them, we know them. Um, and in the documentary world, a lot of times you adapt to tools you have, and you make that work, just like a location. You have to adapt to that location. You have to adapt yeah. to your subject's time. You have to adapt to the light you're working with. So I, I said, that's fine. Well, let's, uh, let's adapt our, our shooting style and incorporate those cameras. I had a Sony F5. Um, and I also had a Sony A7S II. We brought that to the table. And then we wanted to do one more camera that really was the A camera. Um, and Jeff wanted the the eyeline right into the camera. Um, and so we d- uh, we started with an Interatron, um, which is was sort of created by Errol Morris so that he could have interviews with the eyeline directly into the camera. It's essentially two teleprompters. Uh, one teleprompter is on the camera, but instead of uh, text uh, that the subject is reading, the face of the director is on the teleprompter. So the, the person is having this sort of 
face-to-face discussion via an electronic set of monitors. Um, And the director is in front of a monitor looking at a camera. And the uh, the subject is in front of a, of the a camera looking at a, a monitor through a, a beam splitter, a, a periscope, essentially. Um, and so we and then we decided to use a large uh, full frame camera so that we could have higher resolution, shallower depth of field um, so that we could make our sets feel a little bit more authentic mm. and the locations feel more authentic. So we did a fairly extensive test of the Sony Venice, uh, which I had used on several projects and had had great luck, and the Red Monstro, which is a Mm. full-frame 8K camera. The Sony Venice is a full-frame 6K camera. The images are slightly different sizes, but essentially full-frame. So we did pretty extensive side-by-side testing and honestly found, for our purposes, both cameras looked fantastic and would it would have been hard to really say this camera really is better so jeff made the final call just on pixel count uh because we wanted the ability to resize the frame and cut in without having to leave that frame so uh we settled on the red monstro um and that gave us 8k so that we could really make two or three different sizes out of the same frame um and that made a that made a huge a huge difference for us to be able to cut in and out of the frame. So you've got the the medium, and then you're cut into a close up, and you never you could you could sort of live within that frame. What then did we, you deliver in? Did you uh, deliver in 4K or delivered in ne- 4K? Okay, delivered in 4K. So we could push in a little more than twice without uh, without it falling apart. Um, yeah. And sometimes they push in a little bit more than that. Um, we've always been able to push in a little past the actual resolution because of um, um, you know, interpolation software is so good these days that you can sort of cheat a little bit, but yeah. we didn't we didn't cheat a lot. You um, can get that extra 20% out of just about anything nowadays, just that little bit, maybe a 20. That might be a little pushing it, but I know what you mean. Yeah, it's impressive. I mean, uh, you know, interpolation has, has come along so far. Um, and you can get away with it more because when you're doing a documentary with stock footage, that, of course, was 1080 or whatever it was. Um, and so... Um, but it's. I think it's pretty difficult to see any ragged edges on the on the a camera, the the into the camera. Um, and it was a bit of an experimental process coming in. Um, we, Jeff, the our director Jeff wanted to have this into the camera look, um, yeah. but then we also were like, well, we're not sure if we're going to live there or if we want to have a backup. So we also had an off-axis camera. Um, and then we had a rail dolly and a camera that basically met with the A camera on axis all the way off to about eight feet off axis. Ah, okay. And then we had a profile camera that was a tight choker. And then we had, in some shots, a dolly on the other side of the eye line, which we ended up not wanting to continue to go with. It was too jarring. Yeah. Uh, and then we had some uh, one or two wide shots. Um, sometimes they were high, sometimes they were low. Um, usually showing as much of the room as we could. Um, and for those, often the boom or lights or whatever were in the shot, and we would then shoot plates and then composite the boom out um, yep. so that we could have that big wide frame. Um, and sometimes we would even, throughout the interview, move the wides. So we'd have two wides, and then we would move those wides so that 
um, every time we you stop down. You mean move during the recording or just record like, you know, 45 minutes, move it, do the next 45? 45 minutes and then, uh, yeah, 45 minutes and then move it. Um, so that then we had essentially, you know, two wides or four wides or six wides to choose from. Yeah. If it was a really long interview and that gave us the flexibility to have a, a, a bunch of different feels. I would say that one of the um, one of the descriptive words, the look and feel that we were looking for was surveillance because mm. we're talking about surveillance capitalism. So we wanted to to our wide shots to feel as m- as much as possible, kind of like, you know, surveillance, kind of like you're you're uh, you're seeing through a security camera, like you're being looked in on. Um, or like, like you're from the point of view of, a, of surveillance. Um, I think that's important to the story. Like you said it, it, so I'm counting, is that five cameras now, five or six, depending on the setup, are they all the exact same red cameras or are you mixing different formats in there? We were mixing different formats a lot. Mm. Um, yeah, we had four to, uh, so the minimum, the smallest interview we ever did was I think we were down to four cameras. The average was the smallest. The smallest. The average was six. And for our real key interviews, we were seven and eight. We only did one interview with eight cameras, but we for the uh, we ended up deciding that that was just excessive. And it was really hard to find a location where you could make eight good looking shots. Yeah. Um, And we threw away that eighth camera ultimately because we were like, well, we're it's diminishing returns. We why, why waste why waste the time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we ended up with ultimately an average of six cameras for, per interview. Uh, one was on the slider. We went back and forth between moving and parking on shots and moving very slowly on shots. Uh, yeah. and that was sort of an ongoing debate between our director and our editor Davis, uh, Davis Colcomb. And he, uh, uh, Davis and Jeff kind of had different views on how moving that camera. And so sometimes we moved it, sometimes we didn't. And they sort of, did, they did a, the two of them did a great job of incorporating that in. And I think that happens on films where there's debates between different sort of different visions and sometimes, and that is often healthy. You know, I mean, we would, um, we would have debates sometimes about framing, um, and when you're yeah. working with a director who's a director of photography himself, ultimately you defer to your director. But sometimes you want to make an argument for a, a thing that you see. And sometimes it's worth making that argument because you feel like it's the better thing. Sometimes it's just a, it's just you like it better. Um, but I think that that debate is a healthy, healthy thing to have. Um, and then ultimately the reason a film's is a hierarchy is that there is an ultimate decision and that gets made by the director and the, and the producer. Yeah. So, yeah. So what, what were some of the cameras you were blending in there? So you had the, the red camera, were you throwing it? Like, did you throw in your Sony a7S? Like, were you throwing stuff in there? Yeah. Yeah. So we had uh, a camera was a Monstro 8K, usually with an 85 prime on it, as wide as a 50, as long as a 135. Mm. The B camera was a, uh, sometimes a Sony F5 with either a, a Canon 17 to 120 Cine Zoom or an 85 or a 135 um, a Sigma Cine Prime. And sometimes that camera was a Dragon um, 6K, shooting 6K 
uh, open gate. Uh, the other one of the the profile, the the straight profile was a seventy to two hundred uh, seventy to two hundred cannon cine or seventy to two hundred cannon uh, L uh, L series uh, still lens on a red dragon shooting six K open gate. Uh, then the wide shots would sometimes either be an FS seven with a fourteen uh, or a twenty four. Those are that kind of surveillance shot that you're talking about? The surveillance shot. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it was a 14, sometimes it was a 24. Sometimes I use the A7 with a 15 mil Zeiss ZF on it. Um, And uh, in fact, that shot shows up in the reverse shot of Tristan talking to the live audience. There was an A7 tucked under the curtain that was 180 degrees behind him, where you see the whole room. Yeah. Uh, and that was an A7 with a, a Zeiss ZF-15 on it, just sitting on the ground on a little sandbag. So when you're mixing all of these cameras, I, I have a couple of questions. One, how many operators were actually on set for these four to six, sometimes even more cameras? Did each camera have their own operator? No, that was one of the other interesting things. Because these guys, uh, because the Exposure Labs uh, crew is used to working so tightly together, when they did Chasing Coral, uh, Larissa who is the producer was also sometimes doing sound. Um, wow. So we, uh, the, these guys, sometimes Larissa would do sound. Sometimes um, um, Mark, uh, who is our music composer, would also do sound. And uh, oh sometimes God. he would operate the side camera. So we oftentimes had, Mark Crawford is, was our music composer, was also on set with us. And he would occasionally operate the profile camera, occasionally operate sound. Larissa Rhodes, our producer, would sometimes operate sound. Uh, occasionally, she would operate. We usually would have an AC pulling focus on either the Monstro A camera or on the dolly. Um, I would operate the the, sl- the slider dolly, sh- the rail dolly. Um, and uh, the other ones were fixed, so we didn't have an wow. operator per camera. Um, and I would bounce around on the slider during questions, run over to the wide, check it, make sure it was rolling. And the ACs would also have assignments of cameras too. So usually I was main, I was monitoring two, one or two wides if I could reach it from where the dolly was to yeah. make sure those were going. If not, there was someone else assigned to those wide shots. The uh, Jeff, the director, actually made sure the A camera stayed rolling, cut and rolled that himself. Wow, this was all hands on deck. This is like the way that I op- I've operated when I'm doing like corporate documentaries. It's amazing to see that even at these really high levels, like you guys were doing, you're still kind of using the same old ticks and trips, tr- tips and tricks. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and that's to some extent, you know, with documentary, the one of the major differences between the documentary world and the narrative world is that you're working with real subjects who are not mm. used to huge crews, tons of equipment, that just what it's like to be in a room with a hundred people and pretending they're all not there. Yeah. Um, so limiting the crew size wasn't only a budgetary choice. It was a, a choice of so not having so many bodies in the room for, for the, uh, for the subjects to have to sort of n- ignore. And also yeah. people are talking about stuff they've never talked about before. Most, you know, Documentaries that are really engaging, people are getting into areas that are controversial and intense. And you want 
to create an environment that's as comfortable as possible. One of the biggest challenges that I've faced whenever I'm doing interview-based projects, I mean, I'm certainly not doing documentaries at your level, but tons of interviews, corporate stuff, lots of that type of style of um, production. Uh, one of the biggest problems that I've faced is getting the subject comfortable, mm -hmm. making sure that they give you a good performance. They're not professionals. So talk to me about the way you do that when there are lights and 8 million cameras and people running around. How do you make the, the subject comfortable? Um, so much of it has to do with the personalities of the people that are doing the interviews um, and the conversations that go on ahead of time. And it's, it's really starts with relationships. Um, I have to say that the Exposure Labs folks, Larissa, our producer, Jeff, Mark Davis, our editor, um, are some of the most pleasant people I've ever worked with. Um, mm. a, a team where you really felt great. Um, Daniel Wright, our producer. Um, we, it really felt like a family. It really felt like when I was going to work, I was going to work with my members of my own family. Um, and that is the atmosphere that people that walked onto set walked into. Mm. Even... Even crews that we hired locally, we did a lot of it in the Bay Area. Um, Luke Servold was our gaffer. Um, and so he was on a lot of the shoots, but we shot in Los Angeles. We shot in New York. We shot in um, San Diego. We shot in um, Maine. We, you know, we shot, um, you know, half dozen locations around the country and yeah. getting everyone to feel like they're on the same page and that environment's the first experience that someone walking on set has. And then the other thing is how you set up the set so that it doesn't feel like this impenetrable matrix of indistinguishable equipment. I mean, to most people, it does look like that, but we, yeah. made, we made pathways through the equipment, which was a safe, comfortable place to walk where you're not walking over cables and you're not walking under. I, I really don't like a set where people have to cross over a whole bunch of cables duck around things. I like pathways to be three to four feet wide. Yeah, that's um, smart. I, I like for for people to not be intimidated by the equipment. Um, I don't like cables running in front of subjects because it's just a, it's clutter. Um, I don't want anybody to ever have their feet resting on a cable during an interview because mm. you're just, something as subtle as that will take you out of your, out of the space. So the the chair was always comfortable the space someone was sitting was always comfortable. The temperature was always good. Mm. There was always plenty to eat. There was always the option to stop anytime. So it wasn't like an interrogation where you're like let into the space and you can't move. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's all, there's all sorts of stuff. And the other thing is that you just keep all the sort of non-essential conversation offset. I mean, it's, that's a rule that applies to narrative narrative, music recording, corporate uh, documentary all across the board. Do you sort of build a relationship with the talent, uh, the on-camera the on interview? Like, do you ever talk to them ahead of time, give them a warning of what's going on, or do you kind of leave that to the director and producer? I usually am. I usually will meet them just before they walk on set. Mm. Um, and I'll come out and I'll just have this sort of introduction and say, hey, I'm John, I'm the cinematographer, and um, my job is to help you tell your story and to make you look good. Um, and sometimes I will actually lead them onto the set. Sometimes Jeff or Larissa would lead them onto the set. It just depended on the subject and it depended on the location and the timing. 
Um, I wouldn't spend a lot of time with the subjects because to some extent, I'm just a distraction really from what they're there for. So I wanted them to feel like if they had any questions that involve the cameras, how do I look? Can I see a picture? Where's the key light? Is there something I need to know about this lens or that lens? I wanted to make every subject that was I was working with feel like they could ask me any question whatsoever or make any requests whatsoever. So I didn't want to, I didn't want the impenetrable wall be, be, between being in front of and behind the camera. But I also didn't want to feel like I was a, was there as a distraction. I sort of did not distracting from the lens was important. What was the longest interview you did for the film? I think on those initial interviews, we did six hours. Six, wow. Six, six hours, hours on camera? On camera, over wow. six hours. And we did some of those interviews. Tristan's first interview, I think, was two days of six, six something hours. Wow. Um, and yeah, because it was for him, it was just tell the entire story of all of this. Um, yeah. And we would double back. So they would they would talk about stuff and they would double back and talk about that again. And then the next day, and then we went back with Tristan a couple of different times and talked to him. Sure. Um, so, um, yeah, and there, and that's a tricky thing, too, because you can just wear someone down. Um, yeah. And this, this is not an expose where you're trying to wear them down. You're, this is a, this is a, a friendly environment. So, so pacing was super important. Um, that's why it had to be comfortable. That's why, um, yeah, choice of the key light was important too, because we didn't want a, you know, we didn't want a squinty subject that was being bombarded by massive light. You know, actors are trained to do that. You know, sometimes the key has to be punishing because that's the way it, you need that kind of ratio of key light to fill in order to make up against the background. But, but uh, documentary subjects aren't used to that stuff, so we had to sure. make sure that our environment was was always comfortable. Yeah, let's dive in a little bit more to lighting um, uh, because I'm curious kind of how you're lighting these environments and are they real environments or or are you building sets? So all of this in just a second, but I want to quickly mention our sponsor, MZ, Education for Creatives. Head over to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ to check out all of their offerings. Now, there are many reasons that I love MZ and I've been talking about them nonstop for the past couple of years now. Um, but the big thing is that, first of all, yes, you have education that is like perfect for us at Go Creative Show. I'm talking about subjects like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. So it's all the stuff that we want to know. But the best part about MZ is that the quality of these courses is really high, and the trainers themselves, the educators themselves, are just fantastic. We're talking about like A-level educators, Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut. Philip Bloom, um, Tom Cross, the editor of La La Land and Whiplash. He is an educator on MZ. The ARI Academy is on MZ. So like we're talking about, first of all, great topics that we all want to be better at, blended with educators that are just at the top of their game and just really high quality production value, which is, you know, we're going to respond. We're going to respond well to that. And that's just what I love about MZ. Now, yes, you can buy individual courses and that's great. But the best thing to do is to become an MZ Pro member because then you have access to everything, everything. And the best part is you get a 20% off discount by using GCS20 in the checkout promo code. So GCS20, get 20% off. It's all there. 
gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, education for creatives, gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. All right, um, John, I want to talk about the way that you are lighting the interviews for The Social Dilemma, because there are, you had mentioned, six-hour interviews. You're trying to kind of limit your equipment to the, not limit the equipment, but limit the exposure of the equipment to, like, overwhelm your talent. Um, Are you taking a similar route with lighting to make sure that your talent is comfortable and not intimidated? Yeah, as much as possible. Um, The first... Um, the 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 first groups of interviews that we did were the team from the Center of hum, uh, Center for Humane Technologies, and that was Tristan Harris's group. All of that was done on a set, um, mm. and we wanted a set that had a a sort of hollow warehouse tech feel, you know, kind of like a kind of like the the sub basement of a of a tech startup, right? Um, and uh, I have a background in theatrical lighting design all through high school. Um, oh, I, great. I lit a lot of the- theater shows, um, you know, probably six years of theater lighting design before I got into television and then film. Um, and so we talked about some of the, the- theatrical tools um, using a grid and using ellipsoidals to create window patterns so that we could have a window pattern that wouldn't move over six hours. Yeah. And uh, so we uh, we worked with a, a production designer and created a uh, created a set that had that feel. And then we were I worked with our gaffer uh, Luke to create a um, a look that had window patterns that felt like light was coming in um, and that was a little Theatrical, little stylized, but realistically, people would most likely believe that that light could be coming from a real source or a real window. Yeah, it depends. I mean, I think it's up for interpretation. I look at it and I feel like, well, those are mostly that's mostly pattern lights. But the most people that I've talked to feel like it, they're looking at real sources. Now, was this set built on like a soundstage, or did you find an empty warehouse or something and, and create little vignettes there? It was actually built in um, a guest house of one of the subjects. Um, oh, wow. So, so so they had a huge guest house that was sitting mostly empty. Um, and it was in a very quiet location, very easy to get to, huge driveway. So we were able to sort of take this place over for two weeks, build That's the right. set, pre-light do sort of tech rehearsals and then shoot these interviews and then have the time to leave. We let, we were able to leave this set for a whole week dark while we sort of made sure and screened all the footage to make sure that there wasn't something we needed to come back for. Yeah. So that was an amazing gift. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Cause this would, this would have taken, uh, you know, a mid size insert stage to shoot. Um, and so the space we had now that said, there was no grid, so we had to build a grid. There was no, you know, there's not big power drops, um, so we didn't have big spider boxes to plug in a lot of the instruments. And, you know, that set, we had 25 instruments, mm. lighting, um, dimmer boards, LEDs, tungsten lights, um, a mix of stuff. Um, one of the things that was important to me 
was that if we were mixing sources, I didn't want to feel the difference between the sources. When you mix tungsten and LED or tungsten and HMI and you're using blue gel, I feel like if you use blue gel that's got any green or magenta shift, it's a giveaway. Mm. And so we tested Lee, Roscoe, and Gam, full blue, on tungsten next to HMI and LED and found that I think the Gam color full blue was the closest match to HMI and LED so that you couldn't tell the difference between really? tungsten and uh, and LED or HMI. Huh. Um, and so, yeah, and we had Kina flows, we had LEDs, we had Dito lights, we had the, the this, it was usually, a, it was often a sky panel S60 through a, um, an, an octa, um, a five-foot octa, or sometimes um, just a frame. Um, in the brighter, uh, on the set, that was. on the In the yeah. natural location, sometimes we used M18s um, through frames or or an octa uh, if we had more horse, if we needed more horsepower. Well, we're going to get to the natural scene. So just, yeah, yeah. just stay, to kind of, the set. yeah. Yeah, because I, I'm the natural stuff. There's a whole bunch of other questions I have about just how you managed real light and timing yeah. and shift and change. But yeah. before we get to there, I just want to kind of finish up our thoughts on the studio environment because there mm -hmm. you had all the control in the world. So that's mm -hmm. always fascinating to me what you choose and mm -hmm. why when you have the ability to kind of do anything. I mean, I know there's limitations, obviously, but you get the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was that that blend of you know creating this environment that people walk into and feel at home to sit down and talk for a while, but also um, also that has this look um, and that isn't going to change for six hours. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, when we approached it, and the, the advantage was we had time to experiment, unlike documentaries in the past. Um, Jeff and Larissa and, and Daniel and the whole production team were made time and had budget for us to experiment. And so we looked at different lighting. We looked at different looks and um, on the space. And then they went away and looked at footage outside of the set to make sure that they were seeing it really clearly. Because when you're standing on set and you're looking at a monitor, you're yeah. still wrapped up in the environment that's happening outside the box. Yeah. Sometimes if you're really trying to define a look, leaving that set leaving the studio and going outside and looking at it on a monitor where you can really be objective helps. And so we had the time to do that. Um, it really seems like you were given quite a bit of time. I mean, I'm sure there's people listening in the audience now thinking back on a documentary they've worked on, or maybe they're working on one now and realizing like, my God, I was just, I, I was told like, grab your camera and go just like shoot yeah. whatever you can get. Like you, you guys yeah. seem to have like an incredible amount of luxury on this shoot, which is just fantastic. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is the track record for the exposure labs team and yeah. the fact that Jeff has this great track record. And so he was able to raise some money to be able to do this kind of thing. Yeah. And 90% of the documentaries I work on, um, you have an hour and a half to set up in whatever location you're given and you just do it. Um, since this film, I, we have been trying as much, I've been trying as much as possible to steer productions towards going on like peer space to find a, a, a better option for an interview location. 
so that you're not just like, oh, well, the, it's a person in an office. We're going to shoot the office. I'm like, yeah. let's see if there's something a couple of blocks away that would work better for us. And it turns out to not be that much money to just do the shoot there. And then you're not walking into someone's house or office with all this equipment. Um, But back to the set, we, we were able to spend that time. And because part of the way we're able to justify it is that we did seven or eight interviews on that set. Um, They were the key interviews for for the film. Um, and so, and we also shot plates of absolutely every camera on absolutely every set everywhere we went. So it also gave us a library of locations that we could comp someone into. Mm. The The goal was never to composite a subject that wasn't originally shot on that set into that set. Yeah. But it gave us an option if we did want to. Did you need uh, to? We ended up compositing several interviews in the film on oh. green screen back into their original sets. Tristan was one of them uh, because we had pickup interviews and the set was long gone. And it was a year after we'd shot on the set and there was additional stuff that we needed to pick up with Tristan. And so we shot, um, we had measured, we had done uh, plates from every single camera on the set and done metrics, measurements, diagrams of lighting positions, lensing, camera positions, heights, focal lengths, apertures. I mean, it was like a visual effects document. Um, Oh, I would love to see that. Is that something you could share with our audience on the website? uh, Yeah, let me let me ask these. See if you can. If you can, that would be awesome just to see how you drew out these scenes. Yeah, let me ask if we ha- if we can share those because that would be I think those would be really valuable. Um, oh yeah. So because we were able to do that in every location, um, and I think that was one of the other great things about these guys is they when they were like we'd like the option to do this, I said, well, here's how you do it. Yeah. Um, I've been presented with that question before. Hey, what if we wanted to come back to this location? And I said, here's how you do it. And there's been other films in the past that didn't really go all the way. And if you don't do the plates like that and make the measurements, it's really hard to go back. Um, It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right. Yeah. Once we had done all those plates, then when we went on a green screen stage, we had the, we, we made sure to have the ability to do live composites with the original plate, compare it to the practical shot where the interviews were um, in that case, Tristan was on the, on the set. Yeah, And look at that side-by-side side with the composite on the green screen with the plate and the actual practical interview, and we were able to get them on set to be indistinguishable. So now I want to talk about the way that you lit and the way you approached your um, locations that you did not have control over, actual mm-hmm. real live locations where you're in someone's space. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, talk to me about how you had your camera set up for those, your lighting set up, and the challenges you faced. Well, the advantage of having this set to start with is that we were able to really establish sort of exactly how we wanted most of the camera arrangement to be, which was yeah. the A camera in the center, the dolly to once to the to the um the key was on the opposite side of the, as the dolly profile shot. So we kind of had established all of that ahead of time. We went into each space with that sort of in mind, and the first thing we would would anchor the setup was the A camera um, in Terratron. And we ended up 
moving to an iDirect for our into camera because the Interatron with the monitors, two monitors, two cameras um, was just too clumsy. Yeah. And Jeff felt comfortable enough putting his head in the periscope in the in the box. So we ended up, that simplified our setup a lot. Uh, we would anchor the setup by finding the frame we liked with the A camera um, and then start building outwards. So we'd land, we'd anchor the A camera, put the dolly in, and then find the, the profile shot from there. Then we'd place the key. Then we'd find the wide shot. Mm. Um, and then we'd start to light the background. Did you go uh, at it with as many cameras in the live scenes? Yeah, the, the... six. Average six wow. cameras on the, on the live. Um, and if we were down to four cameras, it was because we were in a real hurry. But for the most part, we had a full day to do each of the interviews. Okay. Um, there were days we did two and one space and had to make two looks in one space. And you would think, you know, in a traditional documentary world where it's one or two cameras, that's no problem. Two interviews in a day, and then you probably still have time to shoot some some verite or some B-roll. Sure. With these setups, there was so much gear. There was so much time that we took to make these shots look right and then the breakdown that you really did need for some setups a full day for a single interview um and some setups you needed you know you could really squeak and get squeak in a second interview but then those days come time sometimes went long yeah um also because the interviews were long so um yeah and some of the interviews went on for four four to five hours from full sun into Pitch dark. God, um, I, I know. I, I noticed a couple of the interviews just watching the film, and you're aiming towards windows with a world outside. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, they must have really been confident that this was going to end before the sun went down. <laughs> but, but yeah. maybe not. I don't know. Can yeah, talk to us about that challenge because I think we can all relate to that. <laughs> when you are doing real, you know, anything in a real environment, you, you're bound to the sun, and it does what it wants. I have always felt that the best looking interviews incorporate natural light from the space. Yeah. Um, early on when I was working as a, you know, uh, I came up through the lighting department early on when I'd work with DPs that would like come in the room, close the curtains, close the windows, and then light it all with a million lights. I always, I, I'd never resonated with that look. Um, and so I've always taken what is sometimes the more risky, but much more, um, much more visually rewarding approach, which is you've mm -hmm. got to incorporate windows and natural light if they're in the space. But how do you do that over the course of five hours? I mean, that's... Well, what you do is you light for the night and you light for the day and you mm -hmm. have both sets of instruments. So we had a plan and we had lit for day and night in the same setup. Wow. Um, and it just meant um, that we had to tweak um, tweak lights as we went. Um, and that meant, so that was a lot of reason why the sky panel was great because you could bring the sky panel down infinitely as, as you went so that, so that you had a key that could handle the full day, full sun, and you could come all the way down to night. And then we'd add practical lights would come into the scene or we just leave the practical lights on and you wouldn't even see them until they started to appear out of the daylight. Sure. Then we had window patterns. You know, one of the sets 
we had Lico's, Joe Lico's outside the windows, coming in the windows that would get turned on as it got dark. Uh-huh. Because we knew that the floor would be dead if there was no light coming in the windows. And so we ended up putting pattern lights outside that were turned off, turned off in the daylight. And then as the sun started to set, we started to bring those lights online and started to dim them up so that you wouldn't, you know. And we, we you know, editorially, we knew that we were never going to be intercutting between daylight and night. We were going to be going all over the place. So you never had to... You're never worried, and this is true of most documentaries, there's the fear that, oh, well, the daytime shot is going to look so different than the nighttime shot. And very few interviews, very few documentaries that I've worked on where you really get pinned against a wall and you're you're throwing your audience by, by having a daylight shot of the subject and a nighttime shot of the subject. It just doesn't, doesn't really make a difference um, because you're usually going off to some a lot of other visual stuff and then coming back. Um, and so you're you're not remembering that you saw that person in the daylight and now you're seeing them at night. Yeah. Um, whereas a narrative film, you would absolutely notice that because it would it would throw the story a little bit. So you got a little uh, bit of flexibility there, which is good. But I'm curious, can you point our audience to one of your setups that you did have day filming and night filming uh, in the in the same scene, like are, are any of your setups right now, any of the interviews that you did, incorporate both? Yeah. So Shoshana Zubaroff um, was um, shot, started in the day, and then a five hour interview that ended in night. Um, wow. And and so it it moves. It there. It just you see it move and change. And for that interview, I was running around, changing out ND filters. Like we do a question, and in the real transitional times, I would go to A camera, pull, swap the ND, then do a question, then go to B camera, swap the ND, then go to uh, do a question, then C camera, swap the ND, and then D camera, and then sometimes two or sometimes oh the God. AC would swap, and boom, 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 and you're just doing that. And meanwhile, I'm changing NDs out, or the AC and I are changing NDs out. The the gaffer is changing out lighting. Um, sometimes if we had, you know, if we had. We tried to key with sky panels whenever we knew it was going to be a changing light so that we could vary the key very subtly um, with with dimming. Um, Obviously, Joe Lico's are HMIs, so you had to do that with with scrims, with hard scrims. So Um, you were just kind of breaking along the way, giving time to make those adjustments. Yeah, not very long. Very short breaks. Because, yeah, because you uh, really can't. I mean, you don't want to break the flow of the interview. You don't want to, you know, break the energy at all. Yeah, I mean, and it also takes a long time to get up and rolling six cameras. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, I'm really impatient when it takes a long time to roll and mark all the cameras. Yeah. Um, it just, it's just, it's, first of all, it's a massive amount of data you're wasting. Marker A. Okay, marker C. Did you get that? Okay, marker D. Now, did you get marker B? Now, like, okay, common mark, and that just takes a long time. And if you don't do that quickly, you've you've wasted a thousand dollars on markers, you know, in hard drive space, and you got to process all that footage. So then that goes up out of the off the charts as well. So you really have to. I usually will for something like that insist that every camera is getting time code, and so we yeah. did do that. And eventually, what we did is we just would bump a slate at the beginning of the interview 
and just let it go and give up on actually marker. Make sure there was always scratch audio and time code going to every camera. So you had a primary and a backup for syncing. Sure. Um, and that way you didn't have to deal with that. But a lot of times for those setups where we had light changes happening, we would only stop down, depending on the compression on the reds, those were usually our short, shortest loads. We would stagger when we started and stopped cameras. So the Dragons and the FS7s would all roll and the Monstro, and then we'd stop at a half hour and change out the Monstro, leave everything else rolling, and then roll through and then do an overall change out. And during those overall change outs, those roll changes, I could do, make the biggest lighting changes. Yep. Sometimes, um, like on Shoshana's interview, I just went, while we're rolling, ran over right as the director's asking the question and swapped an ND, you know? And I so would you've be got to be like a you got to be like a ninja on set, running yeah. around like, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, there was literally times when she started to answer as the ND was landing in place, and then I had to run back over to my camera and find my frame. Oh my God, that's so yeah. crazy. So, I love that. You should have set up a GoPro just to like I know. watch you running around. It'd be it'd be cool to see that. All right, so two kind of speed round questions, just real quick yeah. answers. Um, mm -hmm. What was your most challenging setup? Yeah, I would say I would say Shoshana's definitely was our most challenging setup because um, we because we had so much light change and we had so much so many windows. Yeah, um, and. Yeah, I thought that was one of the most challenging setups. And then we also did a big live um, event, event, live event coverage of Tristan's speech to a bunch of folks that worked in the tech industry. Um, and that was a challenging setup because we were using lighting within a venue that was already there. So I couldn't bring in any lights. I was able to have them add blue to all the lights, which was great so that it matched the screen because nothing bugs me more than having a blue screen and an or orange faces yes. in a live event. So I blue I was able to get the the venue's lighting director to blue gel all the lights for me. But I had a very very small amount of time and that setup was seven seven cameras. Wow. Two two um and my AC um my ACs, Dean Snodgrass and Ethan Johnson, were also fantastic operators. So they actually operated on that um, uh, in San Francisco at SF Jazz. Um, so they were on long lenses, 300 millimeter, 85 to 300s on Red Dragons. I was on the F5 on the 17 to 120. The A7S was on the floor. There was another Red Dragon up high as a wide. Uh, Zach Fink, who is a, is a director DP, was doing Verite backstage. Um, wow. And I think we had another FS7 as a wide shot um, somewhere else. Well, you do not travel light. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the film is just fantastic. It looks absolutely stunning. I mean, you guys did such a great job. But And, and of course, the, just the topic itself is just so interesting. So if you guys haven't seen it yet, it's on Netflix right now. It's called The Social Dilemma. Go check it out. And of course, check out more of John's work. We'll put all the links to his social and his website uh, in the show notes. Um uh, last question for you, John. I know kind of the whole premise of this film is kind of like separating from social media, but where can people go to learn more about you and check out your work? Um, I have a website, john at johnbarons.com. Um, and um, there's, 
Um, another film you could see is uh, Game Changers on Netflix. Um, and there's another one called Racing Extinction on Netflix that you could uh, see the feature films that I've shot. Um, otherwise, check out my website. All right, John Behrens, uh, and it's spelled B-E-H-R-E-N-S. So you guys can check that out. We'll put a link to all of that in the show notes. John, thank you so much for being on Go Creative Show. Ben, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, I want to thank John Behrens for coming on the show and talking about Social Dilemma, which was just such a fantastic documentary. You guys absolutely have to see it uh, if you haven't already. And if you have, then watch it again, because now you know how it was made and it'll make it that much more interesting to you. I want to thank our sponsor, MZ, Education for Creatives. Get 20% off at checkout by typing in GCS20. Our producer, Connor Crosby. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. Uh, Dave Siegel for mixing and mastering and making the show sound so good. You can find him at siegelsound.com. And of course, all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. You can also follow me, Ben Consoli, on Instagram and Twitter. It almost feels wrong talking about these things. On the same episode, we talked about Social Dilemma, but I'm going to do it anyway. What are you going to do? Um, also, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, where we give you extra exclusive YouTube content. So subscribe to us there and hit the notification bell. And of course, search us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And with that, we will see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. <laughs>